In the trailer of the documentary, Spirit and Truth, Neil Stewart, the pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Greensboro, North Carolina, addresses a concern that many Christians have about church. And Pastor Stewart says, quote, there's a sense that we're losing our consumer base, that we're losing our young people. When a business falters, what do you do? You go back to your customers. What are their needs? What are their desires? Then you give it to them. End quote. And he's getting at the pressure that the church feels to do what keeps people in the pews. He's getting at that pressure. But, but later on in the trailer, Pastor Stewart adds, the customer is always right, but the customer and the consumer of worship is not man, it's God. In the same movie trailer, Pastor Kevin DeYoung says, we think, what do I like? Or what would non-Christians like? Or what do the people in my church like? And we're missing the central question, how does God want to be worshipped? So let's say that you want to build a house. And you design this spectacular house plan. I mean, this is exactly as you want it, and you're excited about it, the builder agrees, and weeks later, you visit the construction site, and you notice that something isn't quite right about your house. I didn't ask for turrets and a drawbridge, okay? You, you ask the builder about it, and he says, oh, yeah, 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 I made some changes to your plan. And this is a better layout, I assure you, and I thought that you'd like the changes. Thought that I'd like the changes. I gave you exactly what I wanted. Saints, God has a design for worship. He's given us a blueprint in Scripture. We ought to build according to His plan. Now, the rhythm of this sermon series is pretty simple. Put off and then put on. See, each of the commandments tells us what not to do, what to put off, and what to do, and what to put on. In order to love and obey our God, and the Ten Commandments are really much deeper than what they may appear on the surface, much deeper than what many people realize. So when we come to each commandment, my pattern uh, is to spend at least one week on what not to do and at least one week on what to do. Two sides of the same coin, all with the aim of training us how to love God and our neighbor. Now, in the second commandment, God forbids us from making or possessing any image of him. He also forbids us from using images to worship and serve him. Furthermore, God doesn't want us to change his worship blueprint. So then, God is calling you and God is calling me to repent of all idolatry, to rid ourselves of images of God and any customs and ceremonies or worship innovations that God has not told us to do in corporate worship. But God is not simply saying, don't worship me in these ways. He is also saying, do worship me in these ways. And Father knows best. Today, I want to continue last week's message, but then move into God's powerful and sufficient means of grace for corporate worship. We'll end with, with what God, how God wants us to, to worship him, what to do in worship. So number one, continuing from last week, images of God are not only forbidden, they are lifeless, speechless, and powerless 
and are therefore useless in worship. God has made himself clear. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. But beyond God forbidding all images of him, think about what images are. They're lifeless, speechless, and powerless distractions made by human artists. Scripture says of images, there is no breath in them. Psalm 115 verses 4, and seven say, 4 through 7 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Jeremiah 10.5 says, Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. Habakkuk 2, verses 18 through 20 is noteworthy. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Isaiah said of idols, if one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Brothers and sisters, images of God are lifeless, speechless, and powerless. Not only are they forbidden, they are useless. God has something better for you. God has something better for me. Might the second commandment be hard for us to swallow because we actually assign spiritual value to images. But God considers images worthless. Jeremiah 10, 14 and 15, it says this, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his idols are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the same time of their punishment, they shall perish. So, so let me ask you, brothers and sisters, excuse me, should we value what God says is worthless? Should we see beauty in what God considers false, a teacher of lies, a work of delusion? Saints, Scripture is filled with prohibitions and warnings against images and idols. And Scripture is filled with stories of people ignoring God, falling into gross idolatry, not worshiping God in the ways he commanded, and subsequently suffering God's judgment. Now this is weighty stuff, very weighty. In Leviticus 10, two priests of Yahweh, Nadab and Abihu, offered worship to God in a way that God did not command. And on the spot, God killed them with fire. God's worship plan is very, very important to him. Changing it leads straight into idolatry and God's judgment. Worship pollutants have been common throughout church history. Folks, 
It's as if God invites his people to a meal. And this meal is a nourishing array of delicious, follow me now, come on, I love talking about food, a delicious array of, of meats and seasoned vegetables and ripened fruits and breads from the finest grains of the world and, and aged cheeses and culinary delights that, that are intentionally prepared with balance and nourishment and strength and enjoyment in mind and his people decline his invitation and they plan their own party and they gorge themselves on donuts and candy and ice cream. And though their sugar binge gives a certain high, eventually what happens? They crash, they feel like garbage, and they don't have the strength or the taste for the nutrition that God has for them. And this happens in worship. The church introduces all kinds of man-made elements into worship, elements that God clearly has not commanded, and people develop a taste for them. Mmm. Gives me a little high, and they come to like having these additions very, very much, and soon people have no taste for what God has provided for their strength. This is, this is a very dangerous, but a very common and historic, excuse me, I'm struggling, where's my drink? I'll keep choking on myself. All right. Chris, I did it again. My brother and I joke about that, and it happened twice already. Okay, where was I? Okay, so this is a very dangerous and a common problem in the church and throughout history because folks recognize that the Reformation happened because of this problem. Okay, the Reformation happened because of this problem. There were so many unbiblical images and innovations added to worship that it was a gluttonous and disgraceful idolatry. And the reformers, they returned the church to God's word, which shapes worship. Sola Scriptura, right? Well, the Pharisees were crafty, and they made stuff up, and they they put religious burdens on people, and Jesus hated it, and Jesus rebuked them. And on one occasion, the Pharisees, they were busting Jesus' chops because he and his disciples were not following one of the traditions, a religious tradition man-made, and Jesus' words to them are relevant for us today. Jesus said, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And that's a really helpful question. And then Jesus gave this striking judgment, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Don't miss it. Vain worship thrives on man-made traditions. Vain worship is not formed by God's authoritative word. No, vain worship appeals to the lusts of the flesh. God's design for worship It's way better, way better. See, images and innovations in corporate worship may thrill for a while, but folks, they're raw sugar. They can be addictive, but they leave people empty. They never nourish the soul, ever. They ruin the appetite for God's true nourishment. Only God's means of grace in corporate worship 
can nourish and sustain our souls. And if God's provision in corporate worship doesn't taste good to us, it's not because God's nourishment is bland. It's because we have trained our taste buds poorly. We need the Holy Spirit to change our tastes and eating habits. So when, let's get practical, when you are spiritually weak and just spent, what do you think feeds your soul and makes you strong? Imagine a man in a, in a counseling session and he's weeping and he's pouring out his heart He's confessing sin. He's struggling openly. And right there, sitting in the chair, is a garden gnome. (laughs) I mean, will that man leave comforted? Helped? Or, Or what if the counselor said, what you need is some yoga? Yoga doesn't address the man's deepest needs, his soul needs. Do lifeless, speechless, powerless, and useless images of God feed our souls and make us strong? Do man-made rituals and traditions feed our souls and make us strong? No. They only distract us from what does feed our souls and make us strong. Saints, we need what God provides and we must guard against diluting it with distractions. God gave us the second commandment because we are prone to distraction. Like cats with laser pointers. Some of you are cat people. It's like our flesh and the world and the devil are shining around that little pinpoint of red light and we're going after it over here and over there and pawing at it and playing with it all the while. Over there, we're we're ignoring God's best. Number two, God's design for worship is not only commanded in Scripture, it is life-giving, dialogical and powerful and therefore eternally beneficial for our souls. Now believing this point number two guards us against distraction. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary logic may be shown from Scripture. Images are lifeless, speechless, and powerless, but our God is alive, amen? Our God is alive and he speaks powerfully to us, showing us what worship should be. Now, there there are at least two different views of corporate worship, the normative principle of worship and the regulative principle of worship. So real quick, the normative principle says that we should do what God commands in Scripture, but that we are also free to do anything else in in, in corporate worship as long as God doesn't forbid it in Scripture and it edifies people. The regulative principle says that what we do in corporate worship should be shaped by Scripture alone and should include only what God has explicitly commanded or what can be logically shown from Scripture. 
And we're not talking about things like uh, what time we worship or where we worship or what we wear to worship. God gives us certain freedoms in those things. What we're talking about here is the elements of worship, not the circumstances of worship. So which principle is right? Well, the normative principle opens up the door to all kinds of weird worship practices that are unbiblical. With the normative principle, trust me, things can get weird really fast. Okay, the sermon being replaced by clowns doing Bible drama. Okay, might encourage someone. Worship gymnasts twisting to to the music, adding an easel up here beside the pulpit so that artists can supplement the preaching with painting. Laughing and stammering around like drunk people during worship. The Holy Spirit hokey pokey, snake handling, and there's a verse for that one. With the normative principle, on what basis could we argue that we shouldn't do certain things in worship? So it seems most fitting That since worship is for God, that God himself should dictate what is and what is not done. His word alone is our guide, not what we think would be cool or would draw people. Only God's word. The the Westminster Confession of Faith 21 uh, says this, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. In Deuteronomy 12, Moses warns Israel about being ensnared by the worship practices of the pagan nations. So it's, it's really, really easy, and I think you'll identify with this, for God's people to be influenced by the culture that they live in. Really easy. So we have to be very, very careful. So Moses warns about inquiring about their gods and asking, how did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? And, and Moses adds, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. And speaking for God, Moses added, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So here's here's what the regulative principle of worship does for us. It gives us divine guardrails for worship so that we can cruise safely and joyfully and not fall off the edge. It ensures that our primary objective is the pleasure of God in which we find our own greatest pleasure. It it protects the sanctity and the sacredness of corporate worship. I I won't develop these concepts biblically, but worship God's way is life-giving. Worship God's way is dialogical. That means it's a conversation. God speaks and then we respond. It's powerful and therefore it's eternally beneficial for our souls. But what has God provided for us in corporate worship? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the 
words of eternal life. Words. Where, dear brothers and sisters, do we hear words of eternal life? Images? Man-made religious traditions and innovations? No. No, we go to God's means of grace, the word and the sacraments ministry in our local church. Think again about what I said last week. I said this, when God's spirit works through God's law to expose idolatry in our hearts and lives, it is God's love for us. And whatever we lose in giving up our idols, we gain back so much more in purer and deeper and more intimate worship and fellowship with God. He does not take our idols without also giving us a more profound experience of his grace and his blessings. Let us long for his blessing more than we long for our idols. Let God's provision of word and sacrament satisfy us till we see our God face to face. That we see Jesus face to face. Folks, that's true. When God takes from us, he's also giving us something better, something more valuable, something that we need more than what he's taking from us. Now this week, a sister in Christ and I talked on the phone and, and uh, she's from Jerusalem Church here and she mentioned King Josiah from 2 Kings 22 and she shared a, a very helpful insight. See, Josiah heard the law of God and he tore his clothes and he wept because Judah's worship had been corrupted by idolatry. And Josiah led God's people to repentance and worship reforms and therefore revitalization, new life. And God's law convicted his people and they got rid of their idols and God was pleased and God blessed Josiah. Josiah, he gathered the people at the house of God and he read the, coven, the book of the covenant or we could say God's law and he made a covenant before Yahweh, a covenant to keep Yahweh's commandments. And 2 Kings 23 verse 3 says, and all the people joined in the covenant. They were with him. And God was working to redirect their gaze from their idols to himself and his worship plan. Saints, God is calling you and God is calling me to hear his law loud and clear. To repent of our idolatry. To put our trust in God and to expect God's ordinary means of grace to worship and satisfy our souls in worship to satisfy our souls. So we must heed, and I think this is appropriate, but we must heed the warning of Stephen from Acts 7. And we must not be stiff-necked people, uncircumcised, in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit as Israel did. We must not be those people. So how should we do corporate worship? How does God nourish, sustain, and strengthen our faith? What good things should we do in, in obedience to the second commandment? Three simple things. I think you know them. The word rightly preached and believed, the sacraments rightly administered and appreciated, and prayer. There you have it. It's not complicated. Simple 
powerful, sufficient. I, I like how Dr. Joseph Piper put it. All you really need is a Bible, a flask of water, a flask of wine, and a loaf of bread. Heidelberg 65 asks, since then faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits, where does this faith come from? And it answers, from the Holy Spirit who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. Boom, there it is. Simple, but powerful and sufficient for us. Now, there's more to be said about corporate worship, okay? What about singing? What about giving? What about oaths and vows? What about fasting? Okay, we should talk about those biblical things. But in the recipe of corporate worship, these three things are the main and essential biblical ingredients. Worship just won't taste right without the word, sacraments, and prayer. Number three, God works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel in corporate worship. Images of God are lifeless, speechless, powerless, and useless, but our God is alive, and he speaks to us with power. God speaks to us through his word. Scripture tells us that faith is a gift from God, and the Holy Spirit reveals the gospel to us through preaching. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, and then verse 25. You have been born again, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, notice how being born again is linked to God's word and preaching. Born again, Heidelberg 98 asks, but may images not be tolerated in the churches as Books for the laity, and that, that's a loaded term there. Heidelberg is responding to Roman Catholicism's corruption in worship, corruptions in worship, including their heavy use of images and icons. And Heidelberg 98 is asking, aren't images helpful though? I mean, don't they, don't they show and they teach people helpful things about God? Heidelberg answers, no. For we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb, and that means speechless, images, but by the living preaching of his word. Images are lifeless. The word of God is living and active. We want living. We want God's speech. We want powerful. We want eternally beneficial. God's people want to hear from their God. Amen? In his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus wrote something stunning. I love him. Really good. And Ursinus addressed the view that says that images and statues are simply ornaments or artwork meant to beautify the church building. And this view says, hey, we're not worshiping the images. We're not worshiping them. We're not bowing down to them. We're not kissing them. We're not, we're not doing any of that stuff. They just beautifully adorn our worship space. Listen to your sinus's response to that view. The best and true ornament of our churches is the pure and unadulterated doctrine of the gospel, the lawful use of the sacraments, 
true prayer and worship in accordance with the word of God. There it is. Nailed it again. Your sinus' wisdom would save many a church from theological drift, from decline, from wasted time and money, and from worship trends that lead people away from God's best. Hear it again. The best and true ornament of our churches is the pure and unadulterated doctrine of the gospel, the lawful use of the sacraments, true prayer, and worship in accordance with the word of God. Something inside of you should say, yes, that's what I want. Just give me that, nothing more, nothing less. Now understand Paul's progression in Romans 10. I think this is important to drive the point home. He writes this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's good news, folks. Okay, so Paul's talking about salvation in Christ and people calling out in faith to Christ alone for salvation. And then Paul asks this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Okay, so Paul links hearing and believing and salvation in Christ alone. He's linking them all. And, and people don't, they don't believe what they don't hear and know. You have to hear and know it. And so Paul continues, and how are they to hear without someone Preaching. Did you get that? Preaching is the means by which people hear and encounter the crucified and risen Christ who alone saves from sin and misery. Paul is talking about God's power in preaching. And Paul seems to teach that preaching comes from ministers ordained to preach, ministers who are sent to preach, Paul says. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then comes... What I really want you to get is Romans 10, 17, where Paul says, and this is very important to understand, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, hearing. Paul links faith and preaching. Paul did not say faith comes from seeing that's not what he said. We don't see and believe. We hear and believe. God speaks. We hear. And through that hearing, the power of the Holy Spirit works to apply the gospel to our lives. And, and our hearts open up and we believe. God builds us up. God works faith in us through hearing the word, brothers and sisters. Now, when I go to a restaurant with my dear wife, and I think we're going to go soon, hopefully, to celebrate our anniversary. And I want to eat good food, folks, probably ethnic food. And I want to talk with my wife without our children there. I love you guys, but I don't want you there, okay? And when we go, all right, and we're surrounded by six zillion TVs, I'll make a little confession, I have a very hard time listening to my wife and hearing what she's trying to say. Ah, I mean, it's pathetic, really. So images, folks, are not helpful on date night, okay? Images not helpful on date night. Images of God, icons and idols distract us from hearing our God. Paul asked the Galatian church in Galatians 3, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Saints, not seeing, not seeing, hearing, hearing over and over. Hear the word, hear the law, hear the gospel, hear your God and respond with faith and thankfulness. Preaching, and we could add teaching in there as well, are God's means to work faith in your heart. Timothy was an ordained pastor. Listen to what Paul told this ordained pastor in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now that's interesting. Scripture says images or idols have no breath in them. But here, Paul says that scripture itself is breathed out by God. The Bible is God's breath, God's voice, God speaking directly to us through preaching and teaching. God forbids images of himself. He's made himself absolutely clear in scripture about that. God calls images worthless and a work of delusion. They can't speak. In fact, God calls them teachers of lies. But God says that scripture is his own breath and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What teaches us God's ways? What corrects our misbehavior? What trains us to obey God willingly and joyfully? God's word preached. Two verses later, Paul is telling Pastor Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. God called Timothy to preach the word to the church. God called Timothy to use the word of God to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort the people of God. Why? To discourage and ruin their lives? To take from them all that is good? No, no way to make them complete, to make them equipped for every good work which pleases God. And some might say, no, 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 I don't need corporate worship. Mm -mm. I don't need no local church. I have my Bible. I've got the spirit. I can just read my Bible on my own and God will speak to me. It's me and Jesus. Hallelujah. That's very, very dangerous thinking. It's unbiblical thinking. It's thinking that will ruin you. We should read the Bible on our own, but the New Testament is really clear. We're talking crystal clear. If you just read it at a kid level, it's clear about this, that all Christians should be part of a local church, submit themselves to a godly group of elders, and devote themselves to corporate worship and fellowship with their local church, period. That is for us. Christians isolated from a local church is entirely foreign to Scripture. It's just not there. Timothy pastored in Ephesus, and Paul instructed Timothy to command and teach certain doctrines. He told them, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Who is Pastor Timothy supposed to teach? Who's who's around? Who's there? Paul mentioned Timothy's ordination, and then he added... Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Oh, boy, don't miss that. 
So the pastor's personal piety and his preaching and teaching are linked to his congregation's salvation. Please think that through. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We must believe all of God's word, and I could say so much more, and I should, but I can't, so I'm moving on. Number four, God strengthens our faith by the use of the sacraments in corporate worship. God has made us visible, uh, visual people, okay? That's why images of God are charming and deceptive, because we're visual people. But God has forbidden images, yes, but he's also given us divinely sanctioned images of the gospel. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are visual, aren't they? We see them. They are images, but they are powerful and effectual God-ordained images. Baptism pictures for us Christ's suffering and his bloodshed to wash away our sins, to purify our souls. Baptism shows us Christ. The bread and wine image for us Christ's suffering and bloodshed to save us from our sins. The Lord's Supper shows us Christ and then through the bread and through the wine it is Christ himself who nourishes and strengthens our soul. Heidelberg 66 explains that the sacraments are holy visible signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by their use he might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise, that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. God has given us his means of visual representation of the gospel, of Christ crucified. And please hear this next part. Christ is present in the sacraments working for our good. He's present. That's not the case with lifeless and speechless and powerless and useless images and innovations. Heidelberg 67 asks, are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? And it answers, yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. Images of God created by artists are not means that God uses to focus our faith on Christ. The word and sacraments are God's powerful and sufficient means to focus our faith on Christ alone. And that is why worship God's way is so important. It focuses us on Christ. We are visual people. We are visual learners. God knows that. He created us like that. And so he gives us images we don't have to make up our own. He gave us images. And here's the thing. Images of God are forbidden, and God is not in them. However, Christ is in the sacraments working to nourish and strengthen us. They are not empty signs and seals. When we receive them by true faith, God is present in the sacraments, and he is working for us. Christ our Lord said this. This is my body. This is my blood so Paul said when we, we take the Lord's Supper, it is a participation in the blood and body of Christ. We do not merely remember 
Christ. We also feast on Christ by faith as he is spiritually present and active in the sacraments working in us to nourish and to strengthen us on our pilgrim journey. And we need this so much. So, so much more needs to be said about the sacraments. But just remember, Christ is present in them. And by grace alone, through faith alone, he works through them to assure and strengthen us. We need them like we need our next meal. Number five, God gives us his grace and spirit. God gives his grace and spirit to those who constantly ask and thank him for them in corporate worship. I'm only mentioning prayer. It deserves a sermon and series probably on its own, but prayer is the most important part of our thankfulness. Prayer is our response to the sweet grace of God provided in the word and the sacraments. Prayer is integral to corporate worship. We do a lot of it. We hear from God and we respond with prayer. We respond with praise. Now, Austin Hess, he preached on Acts 2.42. I read it, but listen to what it says again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That, that right there is the heart, the guts of powerful and sufficient corporate worship. Well, I must close. A lot of health problems stem from poor nutrition. Fatigue is one of them. You just feel like garbage as someone yawns. I saw that. <laughs> Love you, sister, even with your yawn. Uh, in order to have energy, honestly, we, we need sufficient nutrition, right? And the same is true in worship. Saints, run from idolatry. Don't tamper with it. Run from idolatry. It's pure sugar and it does not give you energy. It won't satisfy you. And as you run from idolatry, run to God in his ordinary means of grace and feast. Just glut yourself on God and be satisfied by God. Feast on God's simple means of grace in worship and you will find that your taste for idolatry diminishes.